two quick notes here before we jump into our sermon. The last time that I had the opportunity to preach here, a few weeks back, our esteemed elder, Bob Macher, came up to me after the sermon, or the service, I should say, and he had some kind words to say. He said, Justin, I really like that sermon. I said, thanks, Bob. He said, do you know why I like the sermon? He said, I'm not quite sure. And he said, well, it wasn't one of those skimpy 15 to 20 minute sermons. He goes, I like them when they're long. Now, coming from a longtime elder like Bob, that's the equivalent of getting one of those little cards in your wallet from your state trooper buddy or your your police officer buddy. And then you hop on the highway with a little extra confidence knowing, hey, I can really push this and there's probably nothing that's going to happen to me here. So any problems uh, with the length of this sermon, uh, those can be directed to bob.moucher at gmail.com, bob.moucher. Second note, I was originally supposed to preach this sermon last week, February 14th, but due to weather concerns, it was pushed back, and obviously Pastor Dietrich was here last week. Um, So when I got the news from my father, he says, the session um, has assigned you, you'll be preaching February 14th. And I said, all right, well, what will you be preaching at the time? I wanted to make sure I didn't, you know, I didn't want to run the risk of preaching the exact same text that was just preached a few weeks before. And if best as possible, I wanted to preach something that sort of fit with the flow of the church. So my father tells me, he goes, well, I have just started a series on the Beatitudes, on the Sermon on the Mount. And I said, perfect. February 14th, Valentine's Day, all about love, Paul's great letter, or passage in 1 Corinthians 13, all about love, fits perfectly with the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to preach on 1 Corinthians 13. I've never had the opportunity to do that. So I take out my notes and my my books, and I start prepping for this sermon. I get my laptop out. I'm sitting in front of the fire. My wife walks into the room. She's got her basket of laundry. She says, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm prepping for a sermon. She says, well, where are you preaching? And I said, well, this is going to be at our church. And she's like, oh, great. Um, What are you going to be preaching on? And I went through the whole story that I just told you. Hey, my dad's about to do the Beatitudes. It's February 14th. It's Valentine's Day. I'm going to preach on Paul's great passage on love. She looked at me with disdain and said, sell out. (laughs) Walked away with her laundry. I guess my laundry. Uh, (laughs) So being that it's not February 14th, this cannot be considered a sellout sermon. But preaching on love and speaking on love puts me in a, uh, a nice group of men and women throughout history. Uh, one of the greatest examples, one of the examples that I cherish of this came some 2,500 years ago. In ancient Greece, there was a handful of men and women who partook in and witnessed what would sort of be the precursor to all future Lifetime and Hallmark Network movies. In one of the greatest pieces of historic literature ever penned, the great Greek philosopher Plato, he tells the story of this splendid dinner party. And this was more than just an average party. This was a grandiose celebration of love. It was a festival, a feast, a symposium. And it gave all the great minds of the day a chance to individually honor What mankind loves so much, namely love. So after many of the erudite great minds of antiquity got up and gave a speech 
including men like the, the famous Greek playwright Aristophanes. He was there and gave a famous speech. After all of them gave their speech honoring Eros, the god of love, and they tried as best they could to nail down a definition of what true love actually was, it was finally time for the keynote speaker of the night. Arriving fashionably late was Socrates of Athens, and the raucous room fell silent as he began to give his address. Now, Socrates, at this point, he had already been publicly told by the oracle at Delphi that he was the wisest man in all the world. And this man, the wisest man in all the world, began his speech, his speech on love, in a way that is almost unimaginable, given his place in time. He asserted that the entirety of what he knew of love, he had learned from a woman, from Diatima. That's how he starts off his speech in front of the great male minds of antiquity. Hey guys, let me tell you, everything I'm about to tell you about love, I've learned from a woman. It's almost impossible to overstate how wild that would be for a man speaking some 400 years before Christ in a deeply, deeply patriarchal society. And as most of us married men can attest, Socrates was probably right in doing so. Right? We have a lot to learn from the fairer sex when it comes to love. And certainly, the women in the room have probably taught us men many, many things about love. Having learned much from Diatima, from this great woman, Socrates would go on to argue that love must always be the lover of something rather than nothing. Love must always be the lover of something rather than nothing. That is to say that love cannot exist in a vacuum. It cannot exist in isolation. It cannot exist independently like something that just floats in the air, love floating around. Just as a father, Socrates argues, must always be the father of someone rather than no one. After all, if a father is a father of no one, he's no father at all. Now, this may seem like some weird, innocuous philosophical jargon, but the ramifications of this truth, they're far-reaching. One just might think of the fact that God is our Father and the implications that then follow for the eternality of the Son. If God is Father, that means the Son was always there or God could not be Father. Among many other things, in this epic platonic dialogue, which is called the Symposium, for those of you that are interested in reading it, Socrates argues that love is something that intercedes between the finite and the infinite. Love intercedes between the finite and the infinite. Love connects man with the divine. Love, Socrates argues, is like a ladder. A ladder that connects us with what we all truly desire at our cores. And that is the beautiful and the good. And the beautiful and the good are eternal and divine. But this begs the question, why do we long for the beautiful and the good? Well, we do so, according to Socrates, because what is actually good and actually beautiful will make us happy. Love, then, in essence, is a longing for happiness, for what the Greeks called eudaimonia, for blessedness, for full human flourishing. Love is a desire to be human, 
to be fully human. Now, as much as Hallmark may have skewed our sensibilities, love then is not a searching for our other half. It's not what love is. Love is not finding your other half. But love is a perpetual searching and longing for the good. Love is wanting the good and wanting to secure it forever. And since goodness is divine, love is our ticket to the divine. Love is our gateway to the divine. And Socrates argues in a really remarkable way that we can glimpse the power of love in a profound way in the institution of marriage. In it, we see love longing to secure the good forever. But marriage isn't forever, is it? Right? It is till death do we part. So love, even marital love, is always thwarted by death. Yet through procreation, Plato and Socrates will argue, one of the ultimate expressions of human love, procreation, Death is put at bay, at least temporarily. The birth of a child symbolically defeats death, as love has expelled death and momentarily brought a glimpse of immortality to the beloved. In the birth of a child, we glimpse immortality. We glimpse eternity. We beat back the gates of hell as death is swallowed up in that moment by life. It's a beautiful thing. But alas, that's just a glimpse. It's a beautiful glimpse. It's a true glimpse. But a glimpse nonetheless. But we don't want just a glimpse. I'm not satisfied with just a glimpse. And death will eventually seize the life of that child. Death, then, must always be central to a rigorous conception of love. And that is why the ultimate demonstration of love was God laying down his life for man. And why? So that man, through that love, can have the good secured to himself forever. And because this is the culmination of love, all acts of true earthly love are miniature crucifixions. Every act of love is a sign to the world of the fact that God in Christ has reconciled the world to himself in absolute, unadulterated love. And any supposed act of love is no such thing if it fails to recognize that central truth. And that means to begin to fully get a grip, to fully grasp the weight of love, we need to graduate from Plato to Paul. We got to leave Plato behind and get to Paul if we want to get the full story of what love is. And to do so, we'll be looking at our sermon text, 1 Corinthians 13. And we're going to look at this incredible, famous, and very popular passage under three headings today. Three headings. The importance of love, the definition of love, the eternality of love. The importance of love, the definition of love, the eternality of love. So first, the importance of love. The importance of love. Words mean things in relation to other words. Words mean things in relation to other words. 
I stress this with my students over and over and over again. I don't know if we could say it enough. Context matters. Always. That is why every time I'm up here, I feel as if I am recommending that you get in the habit of reading large chunks of scripture at a time. Read multiple chapters in a row. Ideally, read through a whole book of the Bible in a single sitting. Our text today is a classic example of why such reading habits are so very important. 1 Corinthians 13, this great chapter on love, it has its meaning radically altered or lost when it is divorced or removed from the flow of Paul's letter, especially from the chapter that comes right before it, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's that famous passage where Paul speaks of the church and he relates it to the human body and all the different parts of the body. The church has many members that all make up the one unified body of Christ. And at the very end of 1 Corinthians 12, after talking about the body parts all working together, this is what Paul says. This is the very end of 1 Corinthians 12. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophet, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. That's how chapter 12 ends. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Well, what's the more excellent way? We find it right away at the beginning of our text. 1 Corinthians 13. Right? Paul just continues the thought from 12 to 13. This is the more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Can you see how dangerous, how very dangerous it might be to read this passage extracted from the broader letter as if it was some sort of standalone Pauline poem? And that's the way most of us read it. That's the way I always hear it read at weddings, right? 1 Corinthians 13, detached from 1 Corinthians 12, as if it's a freestanding Pauline sonnet. And in most people's mind, it could start off just like this. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more patient. Thou art more kind. That's how we read 1 Corinthians 13. That's not how Paul writes about it. Calvin, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 13, in his typical sharp, biting, Calvin-y way, he says, the division of the chapter, that means the division between chapter 12 and 13, being so absurd... I could not refrain from changing it myself. It is likely that it happened through the mistake of transcribers. 
Got to remember sometimes, right? Those chapter headings, that's not the original text, right? Read big chunks of scripture. So with the context set, the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, they tell us how vital love is. And that is to say, the church can't function. The church cannot grow without it. That's how vital love is. The church cannot function. It cannot grow without love. Just at the beginning of my internship here with the church, I've kind of got a behind-the-scenes view of just how much work goes into keeping this place running. The extreme amount of man hours that are put in voluntarily by so many at the church. Right? What your session is doing, your elders, and right? sitting in a session meeting, knowing that your session individually prays for each and every one of you at their session meetings. They go down the list, boom. Hours and hours of these meetings. The time that is put in by the Christian Education Committee, by the music that is put on this church, voluntarily so much work goes on that people do not notice. All the people working in the kitchen to put on food all the time, the people cleaning the building, the people taking care of the grounds, your deacons. There was a lot of work going on. I think way more than most of us realize. And Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, you know what, you know what about all that stuff? Your Christian education meetings, they're worthless without love. Your choir practice, your evangelism committees, they are fruitless without love. Having a congregation of men who can prophesy, valueless without love. Having pews packed with people, possessing faith, people with the right doctrines rattling around their skulls, is counterproductive without love. Having an articulate pastor, an articulate expositor of scripture, is profitless for the kingdom without love. Paul goes so far as to say in verse 3, if I give away all that I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I mean, my word. Even martyrdom is without effect if it is not couched in love. If the seed of the church is truly the blood of the martyrs, Paul tells us it is not the blood of grumbling, bitter, doctrine-first, love-second Christians that has borne the fruit of the church. But rather, it is the blood of those whose life has been transformed by the love of Christ. That like the great bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, while tied to the pile of wood that was about to be lit on fire and accelerate his transition from this corruptible flesh to incorruptible glory, he prayed these words. So once again, these are the words of the great Bishop Polycarp. His final words while tied to a pile of wood that was about to be lit on fire as he was about to become a martyr. And these are his last words. I bless thee for that thou hast granted me this day and hour that I might receive a portion amongst the number of the martyrs in the cup of Christ unto resurrection of eternal life, both of body and soul, in the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. May I be received among these in thy presence this day as a rich and acceptable sacrifice, as thou didst prepare and reveal it beforehand, 
and hast accomplished it. Thou that art the faithful and true God. For this cause, yea, and for all things, I praise thee, I bless thee, I glorify thee through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved son, through whom with him and the Holy Spirit be glory both now and for the ages to come. Amen. How many of us go out with words like that? How many of us go out with words like that as we're about to be martyred? How many of us are praising God for our opportunity to be martyred? But Paul tells us, for martyrdom to be efficacious, for martyrdom to bear fruit, it has to be swallowed up in love. And Paul isn't on some weird, solitary, theological island here. He's standing on the words of Jesus himself. You read Paul, you start to realize, hey, hey, Paul's read the Sermon on the Mount. He takes those words of Jesus pretty serious. Paul's standing on the words of Jesus who in Matthew 7 says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, they had no love in them. And like food and water is to the body, so is love to the church. It cannot live without it. But just like we don't know how to fuel our bodies properly, right? The American people, we're very, very bad at taking care of our physical bodies. We don't put the right stuff in. We don't exert the right amount of energy out. But just like food and proper fuel is for our bodies and how we don't know how to fuel them properly, we try to run the church off of the energy drinks and stimulants of new programs, new branding, new committees, new aesthetics, rather than the life-giving waters of love. And that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Because we can be full of hate. We can be lacking any real progressive sanctification and dive headfirst into church committees. We can dive headfirst into programs. But to be full of love requires a deep, uncomfortable self-analysis. To be full of love requires a deep, uncomfortable crucifixion. You want to see Westminster grow? You want to see her grow into her head who is Christ? Ask yourself, how can I be more loving to the people in this room right now? And how can I be more loving to my neighbors? That's the prescription. Paul lays it out for you. And that brings us to our second point, the definition of love, the definition of love. We see the definition given in verses four through seven of our text, four through seven. Words that sound absolutely ridiculous to the world. And words that if we aren't deceiving ourselves, which we are very good at doing, they sound kind of ridiculous to us too. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
Love is what unifies the church. It's what makes us whole. And the church is unified by the lovely one, by the fairest Lord Jesus. As my wife can attest, I certainly lack all of the virtues, all of the marks of love, but maybe none is as lacking in my own life, my own heart, my own attitude and sort of reaction to people than is the virtue of patience. But love is patient. And the lovely one, King Jesus, patiently endured. He descended and endured the descent from the highest heavens into the ash heap of the human condition. He endured the wilderness temptation. He endured the pangs of hunger and thirst. He endured the ignorance of his disciples. As a teacher, I constantly have to battle this sort of desire that I have, this inward desire, and some of you educators might share the same desire. But I often have this desire to sort of grab the back of my head and slam my head into a brick wall, asking myself, how in the world are you not getting this? We've gone over it thousands of times. How do you not get this? And I'm a nitwit. And yet Christ, as rabbi, as teacher, the eternal son patiently taught and retaught and retaught his disciples. Those who couldn't even understand that the God-man was standing in front of them. That's the kind of patience that only deep, deep love can produce. Christ, with patient kindness, endured. He endured the scorn, the ridicule, the hatred of his own countrymen. Christ endured the kiss of Judas himself. Judas, who at the climax of history's greatest betrayal, he is called by Jesus, friend. Listen to these words that you've heard so many times and try to hear them afresh today. These remarkable words. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Friend, do what you came to do. What wondrous unspeakable, otherworldly love is that? And after all, right, this is the same Jesus who in John 15 tells us, greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. Even those friends that betray us, our friends that undermine us, that would sell us down the creek for a few shekels, What kind of love patiently endures someone like Judas? Well, lucky for you and I, the love of God, he sees the Judas in all of us. He sees our constant betrayal. 
He sees our continual choosing of lesser goods. And yet he patiently not only waits for us, waits for our return, but like a good shepherd goes out and hunts down his sheep. In patient, kind love, Christ hunts us down and rescues us from our own perpetual self-destruction. The lovely one has borne all things. Christ has borne all things. Surely he took our pain and he bore our suffering, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Christ endured all things. He's our model. We hear this all the time, but think of those words. Christ is our model. And then think of how radically unlovely we are. Think of the petty slights that we refuse to endure. Go check that internal list, that internal hard drive of the minor wrongs that you refuse to let go. Those minor wrongs that sort of just creep to the front of your mind every time you're talking to that person downstairs in the fellowship hour, that minor time that they wronged you, had the audacity to wrong you 22 months ago. Right? We keep an extensive record of wrongs. And if you're anything like me, you got the receipts. Right? And they're time-stamped, they're color-coded, and they're filed for easy access. You can just open the drawer and be like, yep, that's when they offended me. I remember. But you and I are commanded to let those injustices be washed over by a sea of love. A sea that endures all things. And this is for our benefit. And it's not just for our eternal benefit. It's certainly for our eternal benefit. But it's not just for our eternal benefit. It is for our temporal benefit right now. You see, God is love. And we are made in the image of God. We are made for communion with God. And God exists in an eternal community of interpenetrating, mutual, indwelling, self-giving love. We being made in that image, we will be restless until we rest in God. And to rest in that God, a God that is love, requires being transfigured into a creature of love. It requires being transfigured into a patient, kind creature who endures all things for the benefit of others and also the good of their own soul, for the good of your own psyche. You see, and I know you all know this, hate is corrosive. It eats away. It deconstructs. It dismantles. But remember chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, right? the passage that comes right before this. The body of Christ is something that needs to be built up. Love adds. Love builds. And it continues to build because it never fails. It never fails. And that brings us to our final point, the eternality of love. The eternality of love. Listen again, if you would, to the last few verses of our text, speaking of the eternality of love, starting in verse 8. Love never ends. 
As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Love never fails. Eloquence fails. It falls short. How many times, when faced with real world tragedies, with real suffering, which we've all had our handful of, we've all had our fair share of suffering, When faced with real suffering, with the loss of a loved one, how quickly have you realized that words just fail? How worthless do words seem in the face of those uh, tragedies? How detrimental sometimes are quick words in the face of tragedy? I imagine that you in those situations, that you've said the same things that I've said in those situations. There just aren't any words just aren't any words. Go talk to the combat veteran or go talk to somebody like Anthony Rich who's a 9-11 first responder. And when describing that day and that experience, you'll quickly get to something like, there just aren't any words. There's no words for that. Well, in glory, there will be no need for verbal eloquence. There will be no need to prophesy as what has been prophesied will have come fully to fruition. In glory, there will be no need for an expositor, as we will see God face to face. An understanding that floods the intellect, the affections, and the senses of our glorified bodies. In glory, there's no need for tongues, because as the great John Webster said, Love will be the grammar of the language we will speak in the world to come. Love will be the grammar of the language that we speak in the world to come. You see, love not only survives. It not only survives the eschatological purgation by fire. Love not only survives the climactic purification and makes it into the kingdom, But love is the very way of the world to come. Love is the order of eternity. Love is the thick ethos of the triune God's eternal kingdom. And here, this is where this text needs to come crashing down like a mortar in the midst of our lethargic, nominal, half-hearted Christianity. It needs to come down like a mortar in the midst of our Laodicean religiosity. If love is the way of life in the world to come, those failing to love now will not be fit for the world to come. If love is the way of life in the world to come, those failing to love now will not be fit for the world to come. And that means we need to robustly exercise our loving now 
so that our atrophied muscles are not torn and our brittle bones are not crushed by the millstone of the judge who comes to judge the living and the dead. And that means we need to spend much time, much more time, attending to the Beatitudes as they are the preparatory school that readies us for the beatific vision. The Beatitudes, they are the preparatory school that prepare you for the beatific vision. And that means we must actively practice being peacemakers. We must wholeheartedly hunger and thirst for righteousness. We must be maniacal about being merciful. Because that is the way of love. That's what prepares us for eternity. Notice again that all those important gifts that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 12, right, the individual body parts, they all come together to form this cohesive, diverse, unified body that is the church. All of those gifts, they pass away. All of them passed away. Those gifts, skills, talents, as important as they may be, They are gifts designed to inform the dying. Preaching, prophesying, speaking in tongues, they are medicine for the sick. But the healthy do not need a doctor. The glorified need no medicine. But love endures. As the old hymn goes, the hymn Gracious Spirit, Holy Ghost. I looked through the Trinity hymnal. I don't know why we don't have it in there. It would have been our closing hymn if we had it. But some of you might know the old hymn, Gracious Spirit, Holy Ghost. It has these beautiful words in it. Faith will vanish into sight. Hope be emptied in delight. Love in heaven will shine more bright. Faith vanishes into sight. Hope emptied in delight. Love in heaven will shine more bright. In comparison to love... Preaching and teaching, prophesying, tongues, child's play. After all, when I was a child, I walked like a child. I talked like a child. I spoke in tongues. I drank the milk of Mother Church. But when I became a man, I put the childish stuff behind me. Give me the grown-up stuff. Give me love. And I challenge each and every one of you this week. To grow up just a little. Grow up just a little bit this week and be more loving. I challenge you to not simply assert abstractly that you're going to be more loving this week. Yeah, I'll do that. Set a plan. Make a list. Choose an area of your life this week where you can exhibit the flowering nature of Christian maturity. Go write a letter to a scorned family member. Young people, go befriend the lonely kid at school. Ask your heavenly father for repentance, for failing to exhibit love in an area of your life where you know that it's lacking. And if you probe deep, right, it's not going to be very hard. Right? We can all pick that up. Yep, I'm not loving in that area. And try to be a little bit more loving this week. God in Christ has loved the world. And we are called to be ministers of worldly reconciling love. That is your primary vocation. Your job is to be a minister of reconciling love. Let's be better employees this week. 
Amen.